Okay, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus has just taught on what it means to live in the kingdom of God, he says, Therefore, anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the wise man building on a rock. When the rain came and the waters rose and the wind blew, the house stood. So, the question for us is how do we build our lives on the rock, the foundation, the true foundation that is going to stand for us? And tonight we're going to see that Jesus is that foundation if we choose to build our lives on him. So he can either be the rock of the foundation or he can be the stumbling stone, depending on what we choose. We not only... Um, learn what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and obey it, but to build your life on the rock means to not just learn what he says, but to truly pursue him first, to learn more about who he is himself, because that he reveals God to us. John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. And that doesn't mean just life one day, but once we're in relationship, this is eternal life to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Okay? But as we seek to know him through the totality of Scripture, we get to things, as we've seen, that are hard for us to understand. Things that seem to be contradictions. But there are no contradictions with God. Or his word. One writer says, Christianity is uniquely hospitable to paradox because there's not contradictions, but there are a lot of paradoxes. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself, but it's true. It seems impossible to understand it because it's two opposite facts or characteristics. And it's hard for us to understand how they can exist, sometimes because we don't know the whole picture. But with the things of God, we may never fully know the, the picture. But I thought it was interesting that this writer said that Christianity is especially hospitable to paradoxes. If we think about it, God is not the God of the either or, but he is the God of the both and. And I love that. Beginning with Jesus, the fact that he was God and he was man. Now, how's that? Okay. He's equal to God, but he humbled himself to have death on the cross. He's the firstborn of all creation, but he became last. God's loss means our life. The paradoxes of grace. The gospel announces, think about the gospel, leniency and violence. Mercy and judgment, rescue and death, weakness as power, foolishness as wisdom. God's nature is a paradox to us. He's both imminent, close, but he's transcendent beyond us. He's merciful, but he's just. He's mysterious, and yet he is knowable in measure. But the paradox is the way that we know the truth of who God really is and how we live rightly in his kingdom. In Romans, we are in a section of paradox. 
the paradox of God's sovereign choosing, which we looked at in chapter 9, and man's responsibility, which we see in chapter 10. Paul is proving in this section, his goal is to prove that the word of God to Israel, the promise, has not fallen. Remember? Because if God didn't keep his promise to Israel, how do we know Romans 8, nothing can separate us, is true. So that's what he's after in all of this that we're looking at. Now, we saw last week the first reason that not all Israel is saved and why the word of God has not fallen. And it was because not Israel, not all of Israel was chosen, but God chose a remnant. That's God's part. Tonight, we're going to look at the second reason that Israel, all Israel is not saved, and we're going to see that it's their fault. Okay? So, let's go to Romans 9, and we're going to finish up chapter 9, verse 30 through 33. What, shall, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. We see that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness by their own works and keeping the law, but they trusted, are not trusting even in their ethnicity as God's chosen people, because that's what Israel was doing. But they obtained righteousness because it was a gift given to them through their faith. Israel, on the other hand, pursued the law of righteousness, not by faith as a grace gift, but by works, trying to earn it. They discounted the fact that though they were trying to be righteous by keeping the law, because they couldn't keep it perfectly, their righteousness could not make them right with a holy God. Law was to point that out to them. That was the goal of the law. However, they had become self-righteous in their effort to keep the law, and they looked down on the Gentiles. So that takes us to our first truth. One of the greatest obstacles to salvation is self-righteousness. One of the greatest obstacles to salvation is self-righteousness. One of the greatest obstacles to salvation is self-righteousness. That's why in the Beatitudes, it starts with, and you're talking about entrance to the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, the destitute, those that know they are destitute. That's the prerequisite to entering into the kingdom. And I would even add to this, I don't have this in the truth, but Self-righteousness, even after you know the Lord, is a great obstacle to intimate relationship with God and being what he wants you to be and knowing the power of God in your life. I can speak to that from experience. So let me ask you, what are you trusting in for your salvation? The only thing a person can do to merit salvation is to throw themselves at God's feet and cry out for mercy through the blood shed by Jesus Christ. That's the only way you merit salvation, 
is to throw yourself destitute at the feet of God and crying out for the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And so I want to ask you, have you done that? Are you depending on Christ alone? And verse 33 is a quote of two different passages in the Old Testament. And it's significant. Remember how Paul makes an argument and then he always brings in the Old Testament. And he's so knowledgeable about not only the Old Testament, but about the gospel in Christ that he can craft. I don't think he changes the meaning, but he can put together and see how the Old Testament pointed to the truths about Christ. And so he picks two different passages. um, And you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read you from Isaiah. So verse 33 says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He makes that all in one verse, but it's from two separate passages. Um, Isaiah 8, 13 and 14. I'm going to do 13 along with 14 that he quotes. I can get there. And Isaiah says, I'm going to go ahead and do a little context to 13 because it flows into 14. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he, talking about the Lord God Almighty, he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So in this context, we see that This passage is talking about God himself, often referred to as a rock or a stone. But then we go over to Isaiah 28, 16 that Paul uses, and he puts that together with this passage about God himself being the stone, and he says, so this is what the sovereign Lord says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed or shaken. So he takes both the part that refers to God Almighty as the stone, and then he brings up this promise that God is going to lay a stone in Zion, which speaks to whom? Jesus. And he combines it. So we see the deity of Christ and how he is the stone, okay? And it is significant for what we're talking about, about the foundation, because it says a sure foundation. So you have the foundation stone that you build on, you have the cornerstone that you line everything up with, and then other places we talk about the capstone, the goal and the finish and the ultimate into it all. Christ is all of those. And so there's great significance in how we align our lives with him. What are we trusting in? What are we seeking after? What are we aligning with? All of those are beautiful pictures about the stone. And yet we have to be careful because he became a stumbling stone to the Jews because of their self-righteousness. So this is equating Jesus with God and showing us that he is the cornerstone and the foundation. Once again, this takes us back to the foundation of your life. Jesus is our foundation. So I want to ask you, are you building your life on Jesus? Is he the beginning of all your decision-making? And is he the goal of all your decision-making? Or is he an afterthought? 
Is he the foundation, the cornerstone, and the capstone of your life? Or is he just window dressing when it's convenient? How well you're able to stand in the trials and storms of life depend on whether he's the foundation. My life group leader gave us this picture Sunday when he was talking about um, the rain's coming and the wind's blowing, and he said a lot of writers think that speaks to these big wadis that are in Israel that are dry most of the year until you get a torrential downpour, and then the, the water rises so quickly there's a flood. And if you have not really dug down deep on that soil and built a foundation on the rock, when that comes, it's going to sweep you away. And it, and it just struck me as I was reflecting on that that you have to build when the storm is not there. It's not that you can't find your footing in the middle of a terrible storm, but it's very, very hard. Who can testify to that when you've been through great grief? It's hard to just function. And so it's so significant um, that we do that. And what we're doing in here day after day, and you do in your Bible study and week after week, is building that foundation so that we will be equipped and ready. This same rock of foundation becomes a stumbling stone, though, for those who are self-righteous. Now, that's what happened to the Jews. So now we're going to see how Paul restates. Remember how the Jews hated him. So many of them hated him, but he had such a heart for the Jews. So now he's going to go in to talking about um, that in chapter 10. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end or completion of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So, why, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel. Let me ask you this question. Why pray for Israel if God is not sovereign in salvation? Think about that. You know, we talked about, and we're going to get into the paradox, but if God is not sovereign, why do we pray about people's salvation if it's all up to the person? Have you ever thought about that? Just the fact that you pray is acknowledging that God at least has a huge part in salvation. Why would we ask him if he didn't? Each person alone does have responsibility, though. But on the other side of that, and we're going to look at this, I want to give you this truth. We are to pray for the salvation of unbelievers. We are to pray. Paul, Paul is our example. And we are to pray for the salvation of of unbelievers. That's one of the things we're trying to focus on in here. And I hope as we go through this series in our, that we've gone through this series in our church and this focus for this year, that you're doing better with that, being more aware of that, praying. And I want to give you uh, three things or three ways you can pray for unbelievers. Um, the first one comes from Ezekiel eleven nineteen where God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. That's the new covenant. So a great way to pray is for God to give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. You're praying scripture to the Lord. Sometimes it's very helpful to me 
to use scripture to give me words to pray for things. They're like tools. Vocabulary is tools. And so it's very helpful both with scripture or sometimes if I read Bible teachers that are amazing that speak to my soul, I'll take their phrases and I'll use them in my prayers. They're just tools that help me when I pray. The second way comes from Deuteronomy 36. The Lord, he says, will circumcise your heart. So you could pray specifically that the Lord would circumcise their heart. Cut away what's hard. Cut away the things that are blinding them. 36. Just chapter 30, verse 6. Sorry. I know. I should have made that clear. Not 36. (laughs) Chapter 30, verse 6. And the third one I I pulled from 2 Timothy 2.22. That God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, of the truth. God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy Timothy 2.22. And I didn't put this down, it just came to me, but, um, you know, I got saved when I was 12, and I remember praying for my dad because my dad was a great, wonderful moral man had been raised in the church but he never had any desire for church never went to church and assured me of his salvation we had many conversations over the years but I had reason to doubt because he wasn't interested in the things of God even though he was an amazing man probably part of the problem that self-righteousness but anyway um, I remember the last few years of his life I changed my prayer and I didn't add this but I just prayed that the Lord would not let him be deceived about his salvation. And, and I think that's a good prayer when you're not sure and someone thinks they're saved, but you don't see the evidence. And I prayed that for a number of years before he died. And he went in the hospital with congestive heart failure, spent about six weeks before he died. And it might have been a week or so before he died, our pastor, our former pastor here, Pastor Chuck, went up to him and said... Um, Mr. Hankins, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? And he said, no. And he prayed to receive Christ about a week before he died. And I thought, wow, all those conversations, him assuring me. And yet, I think sometimes that's a good way to pray that, because we can be self-deceived. If if you don't, I mean, we can't fully know if someone's saved or not. You know, that's between that person and the Lord. But I didn't add that. But, you know, that really spoke to me that, that that happened with my dad and so I want to ask you for whom are you praying to be saved who is on your list and are you consistently praying for them Israel was zealous which means fervent enthusiastic focused desire passion commitment but their zeal was not based on knowledge some commentators think that Paul had himself in mind with his own previous zeal for God And he persecuted the Christians, but he didn't have knowledge of the truth. But what knowledge was missing from Israel? It was the knowledge of God's righteousness, true righteousness, that God was offering as a gift versus their own self-righteousness. That's what was missing. Often people mistake earnestness for truth. Often people mistake earnestness for truth. Well, if you really are just if you really believe it, then that's all that matters. And you can be zealous, but you can be zealous for the wrong thing. That's the truth. That's true for cults, y'all, all the time. Much more zealous than us in many respects. 
For the Jews, zeal was for their own goodness and in keeping the law, and it had become a form of idolatry for them. It was idolatrous, idolatrous pride was part of the reason they rejected Christ. Because the righteousness from God in verse 3 that it speaks about is his own character because he defines righteousness. It's associated with his holiness, and it's the thing that makes him unlike us. So here's your next truth. It's impossible for humans to achieve or earn the righteousness of God. It is impossible for humans to achieve or earn the righteousness of God. It is impossible for humans to achieve or earn the righteousness of God. It is an alien righteousness to us, and we have to receive it by faith. We cannot be in God's presence because of our sin. If we are not made righteous, he must pour out his wrath. That's why he became the substitute, to be able to give us his righteousness. So you can have self-righteousness or you can have God's righteousness. That is entrance to the kingdom. That is your standing. I'm not saying living a righteous life is not important once you are a believer. That's a different matter. I'm talking about how you are right with God, how you are justified and restored in relationship. So which righteousness do you have that you are trusting in? Human righteousness or God's righteousness? And it said that God's righteousness through Christ is because Christ is the end of the law. That means he is, it doesn't mean he does away with the law. There's no point for the law because certainly it's a guide for us. But Christ is the intended goal or the completion of the law because he fulfilled it. He fulfilled it and then he became the one to do it for us. Okay. For now it's significant because here's where we begin to shift again. The paradox. He is the completion of the law for everyone who believes. Now, this is a radical development for the Jews. Entrance into God's chosen people is now open to all. That was a radical thought. Doesn't seem radical to us because that's what we've all heard. But to the Jews, it was it was a closed situation. So this is very radical. And so here we get into the paradox. Chapter 9, unconditional election, choosing some for salvation, passing by others. Chapter 10, the offer of God's righteousness is for everyone who believes. Y'all feel that tension? Y'all feel that tension? That's paradox. And it's part of how we know God because he's so beyond us. Okay? So let's look at verses 5 and see the religion of works. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. And then 6 through 8 is the religion of faith. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. This scripture, this, this scripture seemed a little weird to y'all. I can't remember. Did I give y'all the background verses on this on your homework? Okay, we're going to talk about that. All right. 
This passage is taken from Deuteronomy. Okay, so let's go to Deuteronomy 30. I want to show you this. I think it's interesting. Remember how Paul, he's so good at taking the Old Testament and then making application for us. Deuteronomy 30, 11, chapter 30, <laughs> 30, 11, <laughs> chapter 30, verse 11. And I want you to see, he's just made the, Paul has just made the contrast between the religion of works, keeping the law, versus the righteousness that comes by faith, okay? This context is Moses, Moses given um, a call to the people of Israel. And he's really given them warning prior to, to verse 11 about how um, when if they turn away from God, there's going to be other nations take over them. There's going to be all kinds of problems. But it says, if you will again obey the Lord, follow his commands, the Lord will make you the most prosperous in all the work of your hands. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands uh, written in the book of the law, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So he has here, and it's kind of interesting because he's laying out the importance of the law, and obviously they held on to that. What's going to happen if they follow God and obey the law and not? But he does throw in there, and he already told them about loving him with all your heart and your soul and following him. So there's, there's that piece of it that they kind of missed out on. But nevertheless, this is where he goes, and he's talking about the law. Now, it's interesting that Paul takes this passage where he's exhorting them to follow the law, and he applies it, and he substitutes the law. He puts Christ in Romans in place of where Moses said the law. So he's showing how Christ fulfilled the law and how the new covenant is by faith. So let's look at what Moses said, starting in 11. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we can obey it. Now, let me just remind you who came from heaven to fulfill the law for us. Christ, okay, keep going, nor is it beyond the sea, or in some translations, into the depths, that the sea is always the depths, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we can obey it. No, and by the way, Christ went into the depths and rose again. So you see this picture here of of how he's supplanting Christ with the word. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. So it's so interesting that the religion of works that started with the law in Moses and the exhortation, Paul has now taken that very scripture and made Christ the fulfillment of the law. Does it make more sense to you now why he took that? It sounds, I always wondered it was so weird. So I didn't know that either until I, I delved into it. Paul is just such a master at doing that, at seeing that and putting it together, obviously through the Holy Spirit. So the way we receive Christ and thereby fulfill the law is to believe the word, which is the gospel. The word is near you, the word of faith that Paul proclaimed. And then in 9 and 10, he says... That if you can, and these are so important, y'all, these verses where we're going. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Uh, let me see how far I want to go with that. Yeah, let's just stop right there. So, John MacArthur says, The Hebrews considered the heart to be the core of personhood, the residence of the soul, the deepest, innermost part of the man where thought, will, and motive are generated. So it goes beyond then what we, th we think of heart as more emotion. But for them, it was the core. It was about thought, will, and motive and where they came from. It was very significant. That's why Proverbs 4.32 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. For the Hebrews, it was the core of everything. So he says, It's with the heart man believes. And then he says, You must confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord. Now, why is confession significant? I want to I remind you the early Christians were willing to die for that confession. It costs them something. It generally doesn't cost us very much. And the word Lord is the Greek word kyrios, and it's the Greek translation. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, kyrios, the Greek word, was used for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So he says, if you confess that Jesus is Yahweh, Okay, so that's huge. Jesus is God, and it shows the, the deity of Christ. It shows his power and victory over sin, death, and Savior, that he's the sin, death, and Satan, and that he is our Savior. And it also, Jesus as Lord, declares he is ruler over his people. He is the boss of your life. That's what I tell my, tell my kids. So belief happens in the core of who you are. So why is confession necessary? Because there is no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus. There is no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus. How do you confess Jesus as Lord? You do it at your baptism, and you do it daily, both verbally and how you live your life. At work, at home, how you spend your time confesses whether he's Lord. How you spend your money confesses whether he's Lord. How you reach out to others with the gospel confesses whether he's Lord. How you resist temptation confesses him as Lord. How you endure suffering confesses him as Lord. Christianity is not a one-time decision. It is a lifestyle and a relationship, ladies. Your confession is not a one-time deal when you're baptized it should be every part of your life that's how we declare him as lord so i want to ask you think about this week think about today have you been confessing that he is lord with just all those things i said and a million more it's very significant because christianity is more than just a decision a one-time deal all right let's look at 11 through 13 as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Note, salvation is offered to all. Anyone who trusts in him will have no shame. There's no difference between the Jew and Gentile. Now, once again, this was shocking to the Jews and offensive to them. 
But notice in 12 and 13, not only in these verses are we seeing the offer to everyone, all, but I want you to notice that it says all who call on him, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Paul emphasizes calling on the Lord, not just believing on the Lord. Because the scope of salvation, like I said, is much more than our initial justification and receiving God's righteousness. It is about faith in a relationship. Certainly deliverance from the guilt of sin, but also deliverance from the power of sin and temptations. We receive this by calling on him throughout our lives. So here's your next truth. Christianity is a lifestyle of relationship and dependence. Christianity is a lifestyle of relationship and dependence. And I would add, I guess I should have added on Christ. I guess that was a given. I was assuming y'all knew that, but I better put that in there. Christianity is a lifestyle of relationship and dependence on Christ. That's what calling out to him shows. I want you. I need you. You're important to me. I'm asking and we see this, this verb call in just a, couple, a few places. Psalm 18.3, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I'm saved from my enemies. Psalm 91.15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and deliver him and honor him. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So he wants us to call on him. So much of the access to the riches and the support and the strength and all those things we have come through us calling on him. But notice in verse 14, he says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The calling that saves, well, let me just say this. Believing precedes calling in verse 14. He says in verse, just verse 14, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? So believing precedes calling on him. The calling that saves is calling on Jesus as Lord. Until you believe Jesus is Lord, you can't call on him as Lord. That means he's the boss. He reigns over everything. But then he gives us clear steps to salvation. And, I, and he gives them kind of in reverse order, but I'm going to give you the steps. Number one, and when I say preacher, I don't necessarily mean the vocational preacher. That's anybody sharing the gospel. Number one, the preacher is sent. Number two, they preach the gospel. Number three, the gospel is heard. Number four, the gospel is believed. And number five, the belief is the kind that calls on God for salvation. The belief is the kind that calls on God for salvation. And so what are the components of true faith? There are three components, and I think I, I gave these to you earlier in the study, but I'm going to give them to you again. What does faith involve? Number one, content. You have to have content. Someone needs to give you the gospel, intellectual knowledge. It's more than that, but it's not less. Content, 
Number two, personal agreement with that knowledge. And then number three, trust or commitment, which is the calling on the Lord. Content, personal agreement with the knowledge, and the trust or commitment, which is the calling on the Lord. That, all three of those are part of true saving faith. These verses point us to our mandate to share the gospel. They're a mandate for missions, which flies in the face of those people, oftentimes they're called hyper-Calvinists, that take God's election and predestination to mean then, if God does it all, we don't need to tell anybody. You have to take the totality of Scripture. You can't just take one thing and, and develop a whole thought without the, the whole content of Scripture. So, obviously, it's important that we share the gospel, okay? The entire Scripture is our authority. I also want to point out something else. Verse 15 is a good reminder to us about true beauty, ladies. So I have to make the detour on beauty. And how, uh, let's see, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Okay, I, I said something to someone. Was that you, Hannah, about your feet earlier in a lesson? You are wondering where I was going with that? This is where I'm going with that, Hannah. Okay, let me bring this up. What does God say is true beauty? Think of all the things you've done today or over this last week or year to be beautiful on some level. Shopping, exercise, diet, medication, makeup, hairstyle, color, manicures, pedicures, surgical procedures, etc. Unfortunately, I'm a testimony to this, anything we do is only temporary because aging and the law of entropy is going to take its toll. It's the curse. However, this is, this is what's so great. There is an eternal beauty, a beauty that does not fade, and it's a beauty that is in the eyes of God that we can have. It's ultimately connected with the beauty of our Savior. Beautiful feet of those that bring good news. Now, generally speaking, feet are not beautiful, okay? My feet are terrible because I have these terrible bunions, okay? So I really, this, this verse is like really to me. It comes from a quote from Isaiah 52, 7. Beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. He's talking about functional beauty. Functional beauty as you go to share the gospel. 1 Peter 3, um, 3 through 5 says, Your beauty should not be from outward adornment, the un but it should be the unfading beauty. And he had some other things in there I'm not going to go into. But the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I always had trouble with that till I taught First Peter because I do not have, I'm not quiet, y'all, I'm really loud. And people have to calm me down sometimes because I don't know how loud I am. So I'm like, I'm not a quiet person. But what that means is a steady spirit that is so anchored in God that you're not in turmoil. You're not up, you're not down, you're not worried, you're not stressed. You are anchored in your God because of your relationship. That is what that gentle and quiet spirit means. And that is an unfading beauty, anchored in who God is. That is a beauty that we can have through our relationship to Christ. And it's not going to fade because no matter how much work you have done, ladies, we've seen the results. At some point, it doesn't look good. I'm just saying. It may look good for a while, but at some point, it just doesn't look good. Okay? You just got to you just got to go with it. So why invest yourself in what's not eventually not going to look good 
when you could be beautiful in the eyes of God. And I mean, there's some there's some older ladies in this church, y'all, that are just stunning to me because of who they are in their spirit. So here's your next truth. True beauty is a result of a heart that is passionately devoted to Christ and his glory. True beauty is a result of a heart that is passionately devoted to Christ and his glory. True beauty is a result of a heart that is passionately devoted to Christ and his glory. So how would God describe your feet? Are they beautiful in his sight because you're sharing the gospel? Or do you spend more time on decorating your toenails than on sharing the gospel? I can say that because I'm up here. And my feet are really ugly. My toenails are not painted. But I haven't been sharing the gospel right either, so I'm convicted. Are you focusing on... (laughs) I'm just confessing. Are you focusing on temporal beauty and neglecting the eternal beauty? It's not just about sharing the gospel. It's also about gazing at who he is in his word so that you're transformed in his image. That beauty comes a lot of ways, and they're all found in relationship and obedience. That's what's so amazing. All right, let's look at 16 through 20. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, or some some translations don't say the message, but faith comes from hearing, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation, and I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel has heard. She understood the message. That's why she was so angry about the gospel. Everything that they counted on, everything that they did was counting for nothing. That made them angry. Chapter 9, so here we get to the paradox. Chapter 9 explained Israel's unbelief by stating unconditional election of the remnant. And God said, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And salvation lies with God is what we learned in chapter 9. Chapter 10 has shown that salvation is for everyone and Israel is responsible. And chapter and verse 21, where he says, all day long I have held out my hands shows the great patience, love, and mercy that God is beckoning and continuing to call Israel. So here, the decision seems to lie with Israel, not God. God's beckoning. If he chooses, why aren't they coming? So you see the paradox? I cannot explain it, but we are to submit to God's word and trust him, obviously, when we don't fully understand it. So here's your next truth. God invites the disobedient and obstinate to himself. 
God invites the disobedient and obstinate to himself. So how is God holding out his hands to you right now? Most often, it's through his word. What has he been saying to you? Through your time in the word, through the teaching that you're hearing in your life, the preaching, the music, the circumstances. He speaks through all of those things. Are you resisting him or are you living in submission and obedience? So let's see, what what is our takeaway from all this tonight? The gospel is an amazing treasure that God wants us to offer to all people. We should take seriously the fact that he has chosen us and entrusted us to be the ones to take this treasure, the good news, to the world. We've been entrusted with the treasure. What are we doing with it? The offer is for all. May God find us beautiful in his sight as we fulfill his calling. What to do with the paradoxes in Scripture? Chapter 9, God's will and purpose, choosing. 10, everyone saved that calls on him. I love this, that one writer says this. A great example for us is Moses in what to do with the paradoxes that we see in Scripture. When Moses was faced with the paradox of the burning bush that was not consumed, think of the paradox. To burn means to be consumed. It was a burning bush, but it was not consumed. What was his response? He did two things. Number one, he drew closer for a better look. And number two, he removed his shoes. Paradox offers us these two invitations. Curiosity, draw closer for a better look. And humility. That's what the symbolism of removing your shoes Don't short-circuit your curiosity as you wrestle with truths about God by insisting too prematurely to get to a place of certainty where you can just figure it out and it makes sense. So often we do that, and we don't really draw closer for a, a look to try to get a better understanding or to just see it more clearly. Paradox is a mechanism for attaining truth that while knowable can still remain mysterious. When we are left with tension, complexity, and mystery, it moves us to humility, or it should move us to humility. It moves us towards a place of knowing that he is God and we are not. And truly knowing, ladies, that he is God is enough. It is enough. Let's pray. God, we do submit to you as the one true God. And Lord, that you would reveal anything about yourself to us as unworthy as we are. But you have poured out the riches to see the beauty and the greatness and the complexity and just the unending mercy and grace as you hold out your hands to us. Lord, not just in salvation, but every day. As our gazes are turned to lesser things, help our hearts be sensitive and help us to turn our face to you and our feet would walk in the path that would bring you glory and share your gospel to those that are dead around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.